You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So turn to the reading of God's Word. We begin with Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to get to, to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. After you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! 
While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Betshitta near towards Zerira, as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabat. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Bet-Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Bet-Barah. Then they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Now we also turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary... By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The text this morning is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, which we've already read together, but let's read it again since it is just one verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Beloved Congregation of Christ, 20 years ago, almost all of our garbage would have ended up in a landfill. And today, things are quite a bit different, aren't they? We recycle a lot of our paper, bottles, glass, cardboard, and so on. Even our computers and cell phones are often recycled. And still, there are a lot of things which we simply throw out when we're done with them. Just think of something as basic as socks. Years ago, when socks would get worn out, mom would darn them and fix the holes. Today, when our socks get worn out, most of us, I think, just throw them out. Throw them in the garbage, buy a new pair. There's no recycling today for socks. Despite all our advances in recycling, we still have very much a throwaway society. And that fact draws us into the world of our text for this morning. Because in the days of the Apostle Paul, some things were reused and recycled. But there were other things that you would use a few times, use for a short while, and then you would toss it. And one of those dispensable things was a common household item, the clay jar. Clay jars were cheap, and they were easy to come by. They were a dime a dozen. Every house had many of them, and they were used for storing all kinds of things. But they were not known for their durability. Clay jars were not ancient Tupperware containers that would last forever. You would use them for a short while, and then they'd start to get brittle, they would crumble, and then you'd throw them out, get some more. Clay jars had a limited lifespan. And as Paul was writing this second letter to the Corinthians, it's quite possible that he looked across the room where he was sitting, and he saw some clay jars sitting there. Maybe these clay jars were even starting to crumble. And he realized, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that those clay jars are a good illustration of the servants of the gospel. Questions were were being raised in Corinth about the servants of the gospel, about Paul and his ministry, as well as others associated with him. And in this letter, also through this illustration of the, the clay jars, Paul addresses those questions, those issues. Now, it's important to keep in mind what kind of a relationship Paul had with the church at Corinth. It had been a roller coaster ride. The Corinthians constantly faced challenges, including the challenge of turning their backs on the world and their former unbelieving way of life. Oftentimes, there was too much of the world in the church at Corinth. But then, more challenges presented themselves. This time, there were wolves. Wolves came dressed as shepherds. False apostles or imposters came and they undermined the true gospel ministry. In chapter 11, Paul speaks about these imposters and he calls them super apostles. Super apostles. They were men who were trained speakers. Expert communicators. They were impressive in charisma. They were able to connect with people in a way that Paul couldn't. And in the face of that, Paul had to defend his ministry and apostleship. 
And he did that not out of pride, not out of some self-serving motive, but because of the gospel. Because he had been entrusted with the gospel by Christ himself. According to 2 Corinthians 11.13, these super apostles were false. They were deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. They were preaching, says Paul, they were preaching a different Jesus. The gospel was at stake. And that's why Paul stands up, and that's why he writes what he does here in 2 Corinthians. So you have this context of conflict and challenge. And in this context, Paul writes about the nature of apostleship. What does it mean to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? And he emphasizes that it's not what people think. Rather, it goes against the grain. It's counterintuitive. Intuitive, rather. It's paradoxical. Turns everything upside down. It's not about earthly glory and honor, getting a name for yourself. But about suffering. And trials. Adversity. Persecution. But most importantly of all, is, is the message that an apostle brings. An apostle does not preach himself, but he preaches Jesus Christ. A true apostle preaches the gospel and nothing but the gospel. And he does this for the glory of God in Christ. A true apostle may not be impressive in the eyes of men, but he has an impressive Savior. And he has an impressive message. And so it is with all the servants of God, past and present. And so I preach to you God's word this morning. God's servants Dispensable jars with indispensable treasure. And we're going to consider the precious treasure, the frail servants, and the all-surpassing power and glory. In our text, Paul says that there is a treasure in jars of clay. And first of all, we need to think about what this treasure is. You know, Paul is not the first person in the New Testament to speak about treasure Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to treasure hidden in a field. A man found it and then went and sold everything he had so that he could buy that field, the field that had the treasure buried in it. And from that parable, we learn that treasure is something worth possessing. Treasure is something worth pursuing, worth giving up everything you have for. The kingdom of heaven is worth having and worth giving up everything for. The Lord Jesus went on to say there in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And then he found that one pearl, that one special pearl, the pearl of great price. And he sold everything so that he could have that one pearl that was worth so much. And there again, you see the value of the kingdom of heaven. More importantly, the value of the king of the kingdom of heaven. When the Lord Jesus preached, he preached the good news of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven cannot be separated from the gospel of the king of the kingdom of heaven. From elsewhere in the New Testament, we learn that there are two kinds of treasure. There is earthly treasure. There is bright, shiny bling that makes people covetous. 
the rich fool in Luke 12. I can tell you something about that. Because he stored up treasures for himself on earth. And then God said, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And the Lord Jesus added, This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. So brothers and sisters, there is earthly treasure. But then the Savior also speaks of heavenly treasure in Luke 12. He exhorts us to seek out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Rather than the earthly treasures, we are to seek after the heavenly treasures, the treasures of the kingdom of heaven, the treasure of the gospel. All the earthly treasures will disappear someday. Think about that. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, do you? Earthly treasures will disappear. Earthly treasures will disappoint The earthly treasures will dissolve in fire at the last day. But the heavenly treasure is eternal. The heavenly treasure will always satisfy. The heavenly treasure will be enjoyed into endless days. This is why it's precious. Loved ones, the treasure spoken of by Paul is simply the gospel. It is the announcement of the good news that Jesus Christ has come. He has come to save his people. He's come for you. He's come to live a perfect life for you. He has come to make satisfaction for your sins. He took your place on the cross. And he's paid for all your sins. He's come to be raised from the dead for your justification. Jesus has come to ascend into heaven and be seated at God's right hand for you. He lives to intercede for you. The gospel announces that someday the Lord Jesus will return. And he will make everything new. And we will rise to live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. Through Jesus Christ, you are God's child. You are God's child. And you forever will be. What a precious treasure the gospel is. But not everyone recognizes this treasure for what it is. Some think that it's fool's gold. You know what fool's gold is? It's pyrite. It looks like real gold, but it's found everywhere. And it's worthless. It fools people. That's why we call it fool's gold. It fools people. It tricks people into believing they have something valuable when they don't. And some say that the gospel is fool's gold. And those people were around in Paul's day too. They had veils covering their hearts. And they could not, they would not believe the gospel. They could not see it for the valuable treasure that it was. And that it is. They did not desire Christ. They didn't want Him. They didn't want His person and His work. They thought that they could do without Jesus. But now, brothers and sisters, what about us? 
What about you? The gospel of Jesus Christ is valuable and precious. No matter what anybody says. God's word tells us. The objective word of God gives us the truth. Let me encourage you again to believe his word. Believe that it's valuable for you. Personally. Put the highest possible price on the gospel and on the Savior proclaimed in the gospel. Loved ones, let every single one of us here this morning grow in saying and believing, yes, that gospel is precious to me. It's worth more than anything in the world. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. The gospel is such a precious treasure. To me, Jesus is the pearl of great price. To me, there's nothing more that I want than to to spend eternity with Him. To spend eternity in communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's all grow in saying that. And so we have this heavenly gospel treasure of inestimable value. But Paul says that this treasure is in jars of clay. Now, from a human perspective, this makes no sense. From an earthly point of view, this is actually ridiculous. Because no one in their right mind would take the most valuable treasure on earth and place it in a jar of clay that's fragile and easily broken. Treasure should be stored in safe places where it cannot be stolen. Treasure should be put away in a safe Locked away so that no one can get at it. That's the way we think as human beings. But God comes and he turns all of that upside down. In his wisdom, he puts the treasure in a most unusual place. And he does that because the treasure is not something to be, to be put away, kept out of sight. The treasure is a message that's meant to be shared. The treasure is not meant to be locked away, but to be delivered and to be proclaimed and shared and its value recognized by others so that others would be blessed by it. God puts this treasure in jars of clay. That's meant to highlight the fact that God is pleased to work through what is weak and frail. He could work through what is strong and mighty. Sometimes he does. But he almost always chooses to work through what is ridiculous, what is laughable in the eyes of men. He puts the treasure in jars of clay. And when Paul says this, we can think, first of all, back to Genesis 2 and our creation. God formed man from the dust of the ground. We are literally from the earth, just like clay. We are created. We're created. We're not the creator. We are the creatures. And being creatures means that we have creaturely limitations. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-seeing. There are so many things that we're not able to wrap our brains around, things that we can't understand. When Paul says that the treasure is in jars of clay, he's drawing attention to our humanity, to our creatureliness, And that's something that holds true for 
all people in general. But then there are also the personal limitations of individual human beings. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about some of his personal limitations. He could write a mighty letter. He was good with words on paper. But when he came in person, he didn't impress. He wasn't a great public speaker. Paul would probably not have been at the top of the list if there were vacant churches looking for pastors in his day. He wasn't the Billy Graham or the Rick Warren or the Joel Osteen of his day. But yet the Lord Jesus had chosen him, chosen him to be an apostle for the Gentiles. In Acts 9.15, the Lord said to Ananias that Paul was a chosen vessel. Actually, the same word is used there that we find here in our text for jar. Paul was a carefully selected jar for the gospel message to go to the non-Jewish people in the Roman Empire, to the Gentiles. God chose a man with many personal limitations. And then he used him in a mighty way for the advance of the gospel. With all of Paul's frailty and shortcomings, God used this servant to accomplish his purposes. And today, brothers and sisters, we have seven men, seven men who have been chosen by the Lord through his congregation, seven men who are about to be installed into the offices of elder and deacon. And these men are jars of clay, just as I am. They are human beings. They are creatures of God with the limitations that go with being a human being. And they are also fallen human beings. Each of these men still has the remnants of the old nature with which they constantly have to do battle. Each also has personal limitations. With all these factors, maybe maybe even because of these factors, the Lord has chosen them to be instruments in his hand here in our congregation. And as they minister among us in the years to come, let us remember that they are jars of clay, that they are frail servants, that they are sinful men, just as we are. And as we keep that in mind... That will help us to be patient with their weaknesses and with their shortcomings. And that will also help to speed God's work among us. And as for you, brothers, keeping in mind that you are jars of clay will keep you grounded, will keep you humble. By God's grace and by his Holy Spirit, recognize that you are creatures, that you are weak, sinful, limited, and that will go a long way to making you effective servants in his church. God will be pleased to work through you so that the congregation is directed not to men, but to God, to Christ, the only Savior. And loved ones, all of us have this treasure in jars of clay. We've all been recipients of the grace of God. We've all been given the gospel of our Lord Jesus. All of us are creatures, fragile, prone to sin, finite. 
And all of us, every single one, has been called to prophetically proclaim Christ's name. To bring the gospel to those whom God puts in our lives. And here again, the Lord will use us in our weakness. He will use us in our weakness so that the good news continues to go out. Through us, God will draw sinners out of his darkness and into his, out of darkness and into his wonderful light. But the calling is there for all of us, whether we are special office bearers, right? There are two kinds of office bearers in the church. There are the special office bearers, ministers, elders, and deacons. And there are also general office bearers, which is all believers who share in Christ's anointing as prophet, priest, and king. So whether we're special office bearers or general office bearers, we're called to see ourselves for who we really are. This text gives us a reality check. These words were given by the Spirit so that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. That we would not think ourselves to be anything but jars of clay. So that we would not exalt ourselves and lift ourselves up, but humbly see the true picture of ourselves. Really, this is about humility. And that humility itself flows from the root in the gospel and in Christ. Because Christ, in his ministry here on earth, he humbled himself. Just think of how he came into this world, born in a stable. Right? In Psalm 22, David speaks prophetically about the Lord Jesus when he says, But me, I am, I am a worm and not a man. Zechariah 9 tells us of how the Lord Jesus would come seated on a donkey. A king seated on a donkey? That's humbling yourself. The Lord Jesus did that throughout his life. Throughout his ministry on earth. And his apostles humbled themselves because they were united to him. And all believers joined to Christ by faith and by the Holy Spirit will go and do likewise. By looking to Christ, by fixing our eyes on him, we come to see that we are not indispensable. God does not need us to accomplish his purposes. He can use whomever he wills, wherever he wills, whenever he wills. Now, I learned this lesson some years ago from a retired missionary. We were talking together about mission work and how missionaries sometimes regard themselves as being indispensable. And he said, the thing we need to keep in mind is that no one is indispensable. We're all just little cogs in a big machine, a huge machine. And when the little cogs are gone, the machine keeps working. God may replace the little cogs that are gone, or he may not. It's his choice. But the machine will keep going no matter what. And brothers about to take office, you are not indispensable. I'm not indispensable. Not one of us is. It is God's church. It is God's gospel. And he uses dispensable jars to deliver his indispensable treasure. And keeping that in mind will help all of us to remain humble. 
It also helps us to direct the glory and honor where it belongs. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 7, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And we see that illustrated powerfully in a number of places in the Bible. One of those places is Judges 7, which we read together. Gideon was to defeat the Midianites, not with thousands of men, not with thousands of soldiers, but with 300. A puny little ragtag group. Humanly speaking, it was impossible. But God did it. And he wanted it done with 300 men so that Israel would not boast in itself but give glory to God. What is impossible with men becomes possible with God. And also that the glory would be directed to him. And similarly, God has put the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay so that the all-surpassing power would be from God. And not from human beings. Not from us. And this is illustrated not only with Gideon, but also, and even more spectacularly, at the cross. At the cross. There at Golgotha, a naked, dying man, being punished like a common criminal, becomes our salvation, our righteousness, and our redemption. The cross is where we see this. The gospel of the cross continues to be proclaimed in the same weakness of men. By men who are frail and flimsy, prone to all kinds of sin, all kinds of weakness. But the gospel continues to move forward. God's people are strengthened somehow. And somehow the elect are gathered in. And when that happens, absolutely no one can say that this is because of man. That this is because of man's abilities, because of man's powers. The all-surpassing power is of God alone. And so all glory, praise, and honor belong to Him. Only to Him. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. No reason to be proud of ourselves. One of the defining characteristics of a Christian is that he takes no credit for himself, but always points upward. Always points upward to God. And that kind of an attitude or posture is crucial for understanding the essence of the gospel. Because at its heart, in the essence of the gospel, God does everything. You know, there are those who say that God helps those who help themselves. Brothers and sisters, it's a lie. That's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. No, the gospel says God helps the helpless. Those who can't help themselves. It's all grace from beginning to end. God is everything. He is the be-all and the end-all of our salvation. And the result, the consequence of that, is that only God receives praise. Only God receives glory. Not us. Loved ones, the gospel treasure is so precious. The jars are so frail. 
But when God puts these two together, what results is something amazing. And eventually, even after they've been broken and buried, these frail jars will be transformed into vessels of glory that cannot be broken. Today, now, God is glorified by these clay jars. But someday, these jars will share in his glory. Share in his glory in a way that we can barely begin to imagine. Let's pray together. Our Father, God of glory, we thank you for the precious treasure of the gospel. Thank you for what Christ has done for us and in our place. We'd ask that you please help us not to lose sight of how precious the gospel truly is. Help us never to take it for granted or to begin to assume it. We also thank you for, in your wisdom, placing this treasure in these frail clay jars. And we pray that you would use us as you will for your own glory and for the advance of the gospel among us and throughout the world. And this morning, Father, we especially pray for these seven men whom you have chosen to serve as office bearers. Please bless these jars of clay richly and use them for the ministry of the gospel in our midst, both in word and deed. And we pray that through them it would be seen that the all-surpassing power is from you and not from us. And Father, we pray that the day would come quickly in which we will share your glory in its fullness and that we would see you as you really are with our own eyes. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.